Good morning, Grace. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis 21. And I hope that you have been paying attention this morning. We have been singing these incredible promises. Promises that are wonderful and that should give us hope and joy. And, and I think that's particularly appropriate on this morning because the passage that we're going to be studying deals with promises. A God who makes promises, who keeps promises and maintains promises. And in the midst of all of this, all of this is incredibly gracious to us. And so uh, promise and grace stands really at the heart of everything we're going to be doing this morning. We're going to be spending our time in Genesis chapter 21. And in this chapter, we're going to see the birth of the people of God because we are going to see the birth of the promised son, Isaac. It's a type of Christmas story almost. It's a wonderful passage, and in this, we're going to see the storyline of Genesis move forward. We're going to see the storyline of redemption move forward. And so this is a significant passage for us for many reasons. Four main sections of Scripture that we are going to work through. We're going to do this in three different movements. First, the actual birth of Isaac. We're going to see the, the promised son, the promised child. We're going to see covenant promise being fulfilled. This is the first thing we want to focus and camp on is that God is faithful to keep his covenant promises. God does what he says he will do. He is faithful. And then second, we're going to look at two seemingly disconnected stories that I believe are very connected. And in the midst of this, we're going to see that not only is God faithful to keep his covenant promises, but he is faithful to maintain his covenant promises. He keeps going. He tends to his promise. He's faithful to keep and faithful to preserve. And finally, in all of this, as we see the main story arc move forward, we're going to see that in all of this, God's character holds. He is who he is. He does not falter. He does not change. And we have a beautiful picture of this reality in the passage that we're going to be studying this morning. So that's where we're going to be. We want to see this from the text. Let's pray before we dive in. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come and gather together as, as a family and worship you. Lord, we know that this is only possible because of Christ, and so we approach you in his name. We pray that as a result of our time spent in the word, your spirit would pierce us with the word and cause us to believe in your son, Jesus. Equip us and cause our faith to grow. We offer this time as an act of worship. Please do with it what you will. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So once again, we want to see this morning that God is faithful to keep his covenant promise. His covenant promise. Verse 1 through 7, chapter 21. Read along with me. The Lord visited Sarah as he said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. 
Abraham called the name of his son, who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And the name of his son, who was, uh, and Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Amen. Once again, first thing we want to see this morning from the text is that God is faithful to keep his covenant promises. That's a significant and a weighty statement. So we want to unpack that and make sure we see it from the text. But before we get to that properly, we need to see what's happening here in the story, the context of this passage. Where do we begin in Genesis 21? We begin with grace. Verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah. He visited Sarah. Before we go any further, this has to land on us. The Lord acted. The Lord acted. Not because Sarah had earned this or because she deserved it, but because God is gracious and he gives us what we do not deserve. According to his steadfast love and kindness, God acted and so he visited Sarah. Grace permeates this passage. And as a result of this visitation, as a result of God's grace, verse 2 tells us that Sarah was able to supernaturally conceive and bear a son. And I emphasize that supernatural part because this passage makes it clear that this is something that absolutely could not happen apart from God's gracious action. This was an impossibility. This wasn't something that was normal but unlikely. No, this is something that simply could not happen. Physically impossible. Abraham and Sarah are too worn out for this to happen, yet God makes it happen. The text goes to great lengths to emphasize the impossibility of this happening naturally. Over and over again, we see Abraham and, uh, and Sarah's age spoken about. And this repetition is to impress upon us that This is something that only God can do. This isn't natural. Man can't accomplish this feat. This past week, as as Caleb mentioned, our our student ministry studied uh, uh, John 11, and we studied that idea of Lazarus, and, and Caleb is right on to mention this story. And the reason why is because as uh, Jesus hears that his friend's about to die, he waits. He tarries. He doesn't return. He doesn't return until Lazarus is not, uh, so it's uh, clear that Lazarus isn't mostly dead, but he's dead, dead. Then and only then does Jesus go and return and raise his friend from the dead. Why? Well, because Jesus loves Lazarus, and he loves Martha, and he loves Mary. And because he loves them, he waits until his friend is dead, dead, so that he can go and raise him from the dead, showing that he is both capable and willing to raise the dead. 
Nothing is impossible with our God. And so a similar thing is certainly happening here. Why would God wait so long to give Abraham and Sarah a child? Why wait until they're as old and as barren and as worn out as they are? It's for us. It's for us to show us what God is capable of, to show us that nothing is impossible with him. And because nothing is impossible with God, the baby boy Isaac, the child of promise, the, the, the first of the people of God, was born. And so verse 2 gives us these incredible words that should stop us in our tracks. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. Grace. Amen. But getting to our point, what is absolutely key for us to get is not just that the son of promise was born, not just that the people of God were established in the birth of Isaac, but that Isaac was born in accordance with God's word. This is where the emphasis lies in this passage, and this is where our point gets a little more concrete. Verse 1 tells us that the Lord visited Sarah. Once again, grace. He visited Sarah. But he visited Sarah as he said he would do. Verse 1 goes on to say that the Lord did what? What he promised to do. Verse 2 says that Isaac was born. When? At the time at which it was appointed for him to be born. What we're seeing here is God doing what he said he would do. What we're seeing here is fulfillment. Fulfillment of God's covenant promises made to Abraham. You see, in order for us to get the magnitude of this passage, we have to understand the entire story arc of Abraham, starting back in Genesis 12. And in fact, we really need to back up all the way to Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, God said that he would crush the head of the serpent. He was going to do something about this sin problem, about the alienation between God and man. And how, we, how does he go about crushing the head of the serpent? Well, he enters into a covenant relationship with Abraham back in Genesis 12. That's how he's going to do it. This is the first step. A covenant can be defined very simply as an oath-bound relationship. An oath-bound relationship. It's what we see in marriage. It's the reason why we make vows to one another. It's a relationship with promise. God entered into this relationship with promise, this oath-bound relationship with Abraham back in Genesis 12. And the very first thing that he promised as a part of this relationship was that he would make Abraham a great nation. And implicit in this promise is the promise of an heir through whom this great nation would be established. An heir, the beginning of the people of God. And this was way back in Genesis 12. This was the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12. And for this promise to get all the way to Genesis 21, it had to endure so much. It had to endure time. It had to endure decades and decades. Abraham and Sarah had to endure so much time that they were physically and emotionally worn out. Proverbs say that hope deferred makes the heart sick. I cannot fathom what dealing with decade after decade after decade of waiting for promises to be fulfilled would do. So this, this promise had to endure an incredible amount of time. It had to endure an incredible amount of sin. 
Abraham and Sarah sojourn in Egypt and they, they go into to the land with, uh, with Abimelech and, and both to Pharaoh and Abimelech, Sarah passes, or Abraham passes Sarah off as his sister, sinning against her and sinning against his God and puts Sarah in danger. They lack faith, and so they, they involve Hagar in their plan, and Abraham has a son through Hagar. Sin continues throughout these stories, and so the promise had to endure sin. It had to endure circumstances. Lot is taken off as a captive. A great sin abounds in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the, the cries of the people go up to God, and destruction is rained down from heaven. So much happens from Genesis 12 to 21. So many threats come against the promise of God. But in all of this, God is gracious. And in all of this, he graciously reiterates his promise time and time again. I will do this. Abraham, I will make you a great nation. Your descendants will be numerous. Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 18. Over and over again, he reiterates his promise. Everything seemed to say this would never happen. But God. God acted. God delivered from sin. God preserved. And now we get to Genesis 21 and we see the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. The child of promise, Isaac, was born. As I consider stories like this, I become very aware very quickly that I have no personal story or personal anecdote that can demonstrate what is happening here. I am not capable to reflect God's character. I do not measure up. I am not like God. I am not faithful to my word. I do not keep my word. That is something that often characterizes me. This past week, someone dropped some stuff off in the church office for my wife, Raylin, and so Raylin asked me if I would bring these things to her, and on Monday, I promised her I would bring this stuff home, and then on Tuesday, I promised her that I would bring this stuff home, and then on Wednesday, I promised her that I would bring this stuff home, only for her to finally come to the church office and get it herself. On Friday night, I was feeding my son Henry, and I promised him that if he ate two more bites of dinner, that he could be done. And I made him eat four more bites of dinner. <laughs> this is who I am. My best intention promises will often fall flat. I, I don't keep my word. I forget things. I forget to text people back. I forget to follow through. And in so many areas of my life, I am unfaithful. And unfortunately, I am not alone in this. Unfortunately, this is not a me problem. This is an us problem. This is who we are as people. From the top down, societally, our politicians will lie to us. Our bosses will tell us one thing and do another. Our coworkers or our classmates will say they will do their part of the project and they won't. Our spouses will not keep their word. Our children will not keep their word. Our friends will not keep their word. Our, our, our uh, roommates will not keep their word. This is the type of people that we are. And yes, by God's grace, sometimes we will remain faithful to our word. And by God's grace, we can grow in becoming more and more consistent. But this side of heaven, this is just something we're going to struggle with. But God, God is different. 
He is different. Amen. God will forever remain faithful to his promise. God's steadfast word of promise will endure through time, through sin, through circumstances, and anything that we can think up. God's promise will endure through it. God is faithful. And why should this matter to us? See what the very real and very practical result of God's faithfulness to his covenant promises means for Sarah. Verse 6. God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears me will laugh over me. What's the result of God being faithful to keep his covenant promises? It's joy. It's joy. It's true joy, true happiness. You may remember a couple chapters back, Sarah laughed in disobedient disbelief at the promises of God. She considered that if she believed these promises of God and acted on these promises of God, that the the rest of the world would look at her and realize that she she has lost her mind. But now she has the tangible proof of God's faithfulness in her arms. Her son, Isaac, the very first of the people of God. She sees God's fulfillment and she is overwhelmed, overcome with joy, and she laughs. Any parent knows this kind of laugh. It's the sort of laugh when you meet your child for the first time. It's the sort of laugh when you get a gift that is far too wonderful for you. It's the sort of laugh when you don't get what you deserve. Tim Keller says the laugh we see here is the laughter of grace. The laughter of not getting what you deserve, but what God graciously loves to give. God is the giver of gracious laughter, and he's able to do this because he is faithful to his covenant promises. And this matters to us because God is not only willing to give Sarah this laughter of grace back in the Old Testament, but he is willing to give us this laughter of grace even today. See, Isaac was the first child of promise, but there was a truer and better child of promise yet to come. Jesus is the true and better promise. The Bible says that through Christ, God has enacted a, 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 a better covenant And and now God has entered into a covenant relationship with us, an oath-bound relationship with us. By grace, through faith, in Christ, God now relates to us with a relationship with promise. And these promises are amazing and broad and glorious. Promises that say things like, no matter the time, no matter your sin, no matter your circumstances, God will never leave you nor forsake you if you are in Christ. Or that Christ will build his church, not even the gates of hell can stand against it. Or that in Christ your sin is cast as far as the east is from the west. Or that in Christ the suffering that we experience in this life will always be temporary light and momentary, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. Or that in Christ, those who God foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. 
In Jesus, all of God's promises find their yes and their amen. And so now we who are in Christ can go forward confidently knowing that God is faithful to fulfill his covenant promises. He will do it. He is faithful. So how do we respond to a passage like this? This passage, I believe, calls us to rejoice. To rejoice. We are to be full of real and true joy. We're to have our emotions be affected. And we can do this because God is faithful to keep his covenant promises. And I don't think this means that we walk around with a plastered on fake smile, acting like everything in our life is hunky-dory. Rather, I think God is saying that true and everlasting joy, true happiness is a possibility because that is something that God enables from outside of us and he brings to us in Christ. We can rejoice with Sarah because God has brought the truest and the most perfect fulfillment of his covenant promise to us in Christ. God brings his gracious laughter and he gives it to us through him who saved us and made us his own. And so, armed with this knowledge, consider your faithful God the God who has delivered you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, the God who has sent his son that that, uh, his wrath might be poured out on him rather than us, and let this wash over you. And may God bring you the laughter of grace. So once again, God faithfully fulfills his covenant promises. So we see here in this first section of Genesis 21, but does he only fulfill his promise? Is the picture we see one where God fulfills the promise and then steps away and lets things spiral out of control? No. No. God is more involved than that. And so we go to the second thing we want to see this morning. God is not only faithful to fulfill his covenant promises, but he is faithful to maintain his covenant promises. He's faithful to maintain his covenant promises. We're going to read two passages of scripture. Uh, Hang in there with me, verses 8 through 14. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out the slave woman with her son, For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now let's skip down to verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, 
But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing you did not tell me, and I have not heard of this until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Here we have two passages. Two passages that on the hoof may seem very disconnected, uh, having not much to do with one another. And one of these passages is a very hard passage to read and to reckon with. But I think both of these passages are ultimately passages that are functioning in a similar way. In these passages, God is preserving his covenant promises. These two stories pose potential dilemmas, potential obstacles in the way of covenant fulfillment. Briefly, the story of Abimelech, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but this is significant, I believe. Uh, Abimelech was a Philistine king. He had the power and the authority to make life very difficult for Abraham. And so this may seem like an oddly positioned story coming on the the heels of the story with Hagar and Ishmael, but in this we see something very important happen. Abraham and Abimelech are able to make a covenant together with one another. They make an oath-bound relationship with one another. They enter into a relationship with promise, and in this they strike a peace treaty. God works here to ensure that Abraham will dwell safely in the land. So in this we see God not only fulfilling his covenant promise and and giving the son Isaac, but now he is working and preserving his covenant promise in giving literal space and literal freedom and safety to see that promise begin to flourish. God is acting faithfully to preserve. Now if we back up to this troubling story with Ishmael and Hagar, it may sound strange at first, but this too I think is an example of God preserving his covenant promises. What do I mean? In this story, Isaac has grown and he has been weaned. And so this uh, should mean that, uh, that Isaac is about three years old. And this is a significant milestone in the ancient Near East. This essentially means that Isaac is out of the woods. Infant mortality rates were so high that most children died in this age. And so if a child were to make it to the point where they were weaned from breastfeeding to about the age of three, then that meant that they're probably good. And so it was cause for celebration, cause for a feast. And so Abraham did just that. He called for this this wild, uh, extravagant celebration. And at this celebration, Sarah sees Ishmael 
laughing. And Sarah becomes enraged. And in her rage, she goes to Abraham and she demands that Ishmael and Hagar be cast out. And at first, Abraham is reluctant, but then he agrees and he casts Abraham, or, uh, Hagar and Ishmael out. What in the world is happening here? This is a hard story to get through because it seems to be a story where there is so much callousness towards the well-being of Hagar and Ishmael. So what's happening? First, uh, I'm making a call here. I believe that Sarah is undoubtedly wrong here. Some will try to defend her, but I think it's plain that her actions are evil. She is sending Hagar and Ishmael out to a certain death. I think it is a cruel and an inhumane thing to do to send them out in this way. She's not sending them out into the wilderness where there are plenty of resources. She sends them out into the desert where there is nothing and they are prone or they are uh, destined to die very quickly. But even though she is acting wickedly, I believe here, her reflexes are not wrong. When Sarah observed Ishmael laughing, she didn't see him just having a laugh or enjoying the party. The wording here makes it very clear that what Ishmael was doing was mocking Isaac. This is backed by the New Testament. Galatians 4 says that that Ishmael was persecuting Isaac. Now, we don't know exactly what that means. The text doesn't spell it out, so it's probably unwise for us to go too far with that. But what we do know is, is that this somehow uh, meant that the child of promise and the covenant promise itself was under attack. And Sarah, even in her, her acting wickedly, somehow was able to rightly perceive this. So this is why she says in verse 20, cast out this slave woman with her son for the son of this slave woman shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. That's the deal. Isaac and Ishmael cannot share an inheritance. There is one promise. Galatians 4 backs this up once again. It says that we can understand this allegorically that the There's two covenants, and Ishmael represents the covenant of the flesh, and Isaac represents the covenant of the spirit or of promise, and these things are incompatible. They cannot go together, and so it was right for the the covenant of the flesh to be cast away. And God now backs this line of reasoning when he comforts Abraham. He tells Abraham to send Hagar and Ishmael away, and he says this in verse 12, Do not be displeased. Because of the boy and because of the slave woman. For, why? For, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. What's happening here is a lesson in divine sovereignty. God is working through Sarah's sinful motivations and anger to protect and preserve his covenant promises. God is remaining faithful. God is acting righteously and above reproach, all the while Sarah is acting wickedly and faithlessly. Nevertheless, God moves this thing forward, his plan of redemption. Now I want to pause. I know that might be a heavy thing, so we're going to circle back here. So pause. Big picture. What I think we're seeing here in the story of Ishmael, and the story of Hagar, and the story of Abimelech and Abraham are threats to the covenant promises of God. Threats to the covenant promises of God. God maintains his covenant promises by removing 
the threats. At our apartment, we have a, a back patio. It's an enclosed back patio. And on this back patio is this tree weed thing. I don't really know exactly what it is. At some point, uh, we chopped down a tree in the backyard. And from that grows this tree weed thing that grows the speed of light. It makes very little sense to me. But I'm constantly having to tend to this thing so it doesn't become unwieldy. And last spring, I went out to tend to this thing and to cut it back only to realize that a ton, and I mean a ton, of spiders have taken up residence in this thing. And at that point, I realized that I didn't want to set my apartment complex on fire to deal with this problem, so the safest thing was to see if time and space would fix my problem. And I left it for another time. (laughs) Time and space did not fix the problem. And so come summertime, we wanted to be able to use that that back patio space. We wanted Henry, uh, our son, to be able to play out there and to play in a kiddie pool and enjoy that. And so at this point, I was confronted with the dilemma. One, we could never use that patio again. And that seemed like a tempting option, but one that we ultimately decided not to go with. Two, we could risk it. I'm sure you'll be fine, Henry. Go out and play in the backyard infested with spiders. Or three, as terrible as it is, we could deal with it. We could deal with the spiders. We could deal with the threats. I do not like spiders. I don't understand them. I think they're terrible and scary. But my wife and I, we love our son. And we want him to enjoy his life. And so what do we do? Of course, we go and we get rid of the spiders. We remove the threat so that he can thrive and enjoy that space. So we're seeing, I believe, in this passage, God is not content to merely fulfill a single promise. This fulfillment of a single promise is the first fulfillment moving towards a greater promise. And so now God tends to the promise. And he removes the threats along the way. If we consider the story arc of Genesis and the story arc of the entire Old Testament, we see this happening time and time again. Israel goes off and they're enslaved in Egypt and God rescues his people. He redeems his people out of slavery in Egypt. They go into the wilderness and God graciously tends the promise by giving the law. And then he gives the law again. He graciously tends the promise by giving judges and kings to rule over his people. He tends to the promise by warning his people of the consequences of their sin, that they will be sent off. He sends his people off as a form of discipline to tend to the promise. And then he brings his people back from exile, redeeming them from that fate, tending to the promise. God carefully tends to his promise and he removes the threats from his promise so that his ultimate promise can be fulfilled. Once again, this is good news for us. God, according to the gospel, has made certain promises to us. He says that we will be his people and he will be our God. And now he tends to that. This passage should give us great hope and cause us to rejoice because it reveals that God is not content to merely save us and then back away and let things spiral however they may from there. No, he is committed to continuing to work in us according to his good purposes and pleasure. 
He desires that he would be worshipped in spirit and truth by every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And he desires that his church would be built up into a spiritual house and he is committed to accomplishing these things in us and through us. This is not our right. We have not earned this. Yet, God continues to work in us. God graciously works. So we have yet another reason to laugh with the laughter of grace. He tends to us. And so again, I say rejoice. And so what we're seeing here is God keeping his covenant promises and God maintaining or tending to his covenant promises. Yet, we have this story that may call into question the character of God. And so we want to circle back now and consider God's character. The final thing we're going to see in the word this morning is that God's character holds. God's character holds. Genesis 21, verses 15 through 21. Speaking of Hagar and Ishmael after they've been cast out, when the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Lift up, up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up and he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. We want to circle back here because this is too important for us to miss. God is faithful to keep his covenant promises and he's faithful to maintain his covenant promises, but he will by no means alter his character. He does not change. His character holds. And we see that in these verses. It's a tough pill to swallow that Hagar and Ishmael were cast out, but this was the right thing to do. These covenants do not go together. There was a threat upon the covenant promises of God, and so God dealt with that so that the plan of redemption might move forward. God was preserving his promises through the evil motivations and action of Sarah, but we see here how God deals with Ishmael and Sarah once they're cast out. They're cast out into terrible conditions. Certain death awaits them. It's to the point where Hagar has to carry her probably 16-year-old son on her shoulders. And he's so close to death that she has to go and put him under a bush and she has to leave because she cannot, um, she cannot fathom watching her son die. This is heavy stuff. This should churn inside of us. Hagar goes away, away, and she prayed earnestly to God. And God responded. Amen. Fear not. God has heard 
the voice of the boy. He will not die. I have plans for him. I'm going to do great things in him and through him. I'm going to make him a great nation. He will have children. As the story continues, God provides food and water for Ishmael and Hagar, and their lives are preserved. And then we get this incredible line in verse 20. And God was with the boy with the boy outside of the covenant, with the boy who represented the covenant of flesh, with the boy, grace. The Horse and His Boy is my favorite Chronicles of Narnia book by far. One of the key reasons for that is because of how Aslan deals with the characters in the story with wisdom and grace. And, uh, There's one fairly well-known part of this book where Aslan is walking with and talking with the main character, Shasta. Shasta has just uh, um, went through this big, huge ordeal where he's experienced all sorts of terrible stuff, all sorts of fearful stuff, including having one of his friends be attacked by a lion. And so Shasta and Aslan are walking. Shasta can't see Aslan. He doesn't know that Aslan is a lion And this conversation happens. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta? There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there were at least two lions the first night, and there was only one, but he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped, With open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you as you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion, you do not remember, who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that in came to shore where a man sat wakeful at night to receive you. Then it was you who wounded Erebus. It was I. But what for? Child, said the voice, I'm telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. What we're seeing here in Genesis 21 in these verses is God sovereignly moving his kingdom Forward, but in the midst of this, his character holds. As he is remaining faithful, he is extending grace and compassion. As he is gracious and compassionate, he is faithful. God cares for Sarah and Hagar, and he's big enough to do both of these things at the very same time. He's big enough to tell multiple stories. He's big enough to uh, maintain the covenant promise and include in, or in love these two who have been cast out. We have God's character here on grand display for us, and it is wonderful. We ought to take note of this here today because this is the first time that we see a theme that is woven throughout Scripture. God's care and love for the fatherless and for the orphan. God cares for the lowly. He cares for the despised, for the destitute, for the invalids, for the weak. God cares for the least of these, for the most vulnerable amongst us. And we see this in God's tender, loving care for Ishmael and Hagar. And if God is oriented towards the fatherless and the least of these in these ways, and if God defines true religion as caring for the least of these, for the widowed and for the orphan, 
then we ought to strive to foster this heart in ourselves. And on this point, Grace, I commend you. I commend you. This is something that I think largely characterizes who we are as a local church. You're a generous people. You're generous with your finances. You're generous with your time. You're generous with your homes. and all the ways that you might be generous, I've observed that. It, it, it blesses me to be a part of this community. And please know that in this, in this generosity, I believe God is worshipped. Christ is exalted and God is pleased with these acts of worship. Nevertheless, know this, it is easy to drift. It is easy to sway from the line and get off the road. And we need to be reoriented from time to time. We need to excel still more. And so let passages like this reorient us. As we gaze at the character of God, let this remind us that we ought to be striving to worship God by loving others. Nevertheless, as instructive as a passage like this is, I don't believe the primary point of this passage is to instruct us, rather to cause us to sit back and to gaze at the character of God. What we're seeing in Genesis 21, in the story with Hagar and Ishmael and everywhere else, is a faithful and awesome God. A God who keeps his covenant promises, a God who tends to his covenant promises, and a God who maintains his character even in the midst of that. We have a God who is worthy of worship, a God who is worthy to rejoice in today. So let's pray that God would cause us to rejoice today. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come to you in your word and to see your character on display. We thank you for the opportunity to see that you are a faithful God who keeps your covenant promises, who does what you say that you will do a God who maintains his covenant promises, who doesn't leave us or forsake us, but tends to us graciously and kindly. Lord, would you continue to do that? Would you do that even today by your spirit? Would you cause us to hope in you and believe in you? And yes, Lord, rejoice and laugh with the laughter of grace. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.